My guest today on Paradoxical is Jessica Mosaico from A Fee Winery. Jessica, thanks for enduring with me through our little technical difficulties as we get everything rolling here. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Let's start with the background. Your your origin story is one that I, I particularly like. It's cool. There's a there's got a it's got a big pivot, and I'm always a big fan of that, having made one or two in my life. So give us the background on like, you know, before there was Afi Winery, how did this originate? Yeah, well, first of all, wine was absolutely nadar. My pathway into wine was entirely out of family loyalty. So when I was growing up, my dad, who was a software engineer, had a hobby of making wine just for fun in our garage. And I always helped him, which is translation for I cleaned things a lot. And I really enjoyed doing that. And when I got older, we enjoyed drinking wine together. But again, it was really never on my radar. My passion was science, and I ended up in biotechnology. And all I ever really wanted to do was work on bringing drugs to the market for unmet medical needs. And one day, my dad called me at my job in biotechnology in San Francisco, and he said, hey, I have an idea. Let's start a winery together. And I said, well, that's a great idea. You should go do that. And he said, no, 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 no. We should do it together. And so I said yes, because I thought if I didn't, I didn't think he was really going to end up doing it. So we co-founded the winery together in 2003, 20 years ago. And I just started out helping him. And then I managed the business side of things. And I helped him on the winemaking side. And five years later, I quit my job in biotechnology and moved back home to Oregon and worked on the winery together. And we made wine together. So entirely everything that I knew uh, that I've learned about making wine was from my dad and doing it together. And we made wine together until he passed away very unexpectedly seven years ago. So now I manage it on my own. I'm the sole owner and winemaker making wines that hopefully are inspired by his legacy and my daughter's future. So that is to say that I had no formal education in wine. I never interned anywhere else. So I think that it's a story of if you care about it enough and you're passionate enough and you're curious enough and humble enough to learn and keep learning, you know, you can do whatever is of that much interest to you. So like walking away from a career in biotech, that sounds like it was, it was also a thing where you had kind of a mission there. Tell me about that, because I imagine that must be something you might kind of agonized over a while or wrestled with. And so what was that process like? And how did you come to the the place of being like, okay, I'm going to go do wine with dad and leave this biotech thing behind? Yeah, well, I would say that at first I didn't. So I thought I could do everything and just add it to what I was doing. So we started really small. We basically, we each took $10,000, put it in and said, what is the smallest amount of wine that we can make in the first year? And then once we start selling it, we'll plow it back into the business. And so we were entirely self-funded and we started with just a couple hundred cases, doubled it the next year, doubled it the next year, doubled it the next year. So there was very low barriers to entry, so to speak. And so when we were really small, I didn't need it to be my full-time job. So I sort of dipped my toe into it. And it wasn't for five years until I quit my day job. And the reason I did that is that when I write tasting notes, the wines take on a very specific personality to me. And so sometimes I compare the wines to a celebrity or a brand that we're all familiar with. And one year I had written that our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir was the Cameron Diaz of the lineup in that. It was accessible, spirited, but prettier than the girl next door. And Cameron Diaz's mother saw it and she ordered a case of wine. But I was so busy with my biotech job that it was a month later and I realized, oops, I forgot to send Cameron Diaz's mother her wine. And we had just had a feature article written about us in Wine Spectator. And I realized these positive things that are happening are going to disappear if I'm not paying attention to them and I'm not able to focus on the business. So the next day I went into my boss and I quit my job and moved back to Oregon. So I would say it was a very slow process over the course of five years. 
Okay, so that's one, what a great business story, right? Of like, okay, so yeah, I kind of forgot to send wine to Cameron Diaz's mom. But I, I, I think some people would have been like, okay, well, clearly this wine thing isn't for me because I can't manage that and would have gone the other way. So I'm curious, where, with the biotech piece, was it a thing where it's like you'd kind of, it had run its course for you? Was there something about doing this business with your father that was compelling? Or again, you know, why, why one versus the other? I loved working in biotechnology. I loved my company. I loved my team. It was fantastic. We were about to announce a promotion for me. And I had been in with my boss reorganizing the whole team. And I realized in that moment, if I take this promotion, I'm another year and a half to two years minimum before I can step away from it. So I felt like I can't keep kicking the can down the road of not committing to the wine business. And so I realized the time was right then to do it. It was really scary for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is I had no background in wine and I felt pretty competent in my former life. And so from an ego perspective, it's really hard to go from something that you feel confident about to something that you know very little. And every single marker of what makes you successful was not relevant <laughs> to making wine. <laughs> or I shouldn't say every single, but very little of it was truly relevant. That is a is a big scary leap, but obviously one that you you did and has been and has been successful. And it's a bit of a a, a pivot, although you brought it up. So I'm gonna go into it before we continue on the this story piece. But tell me about this. You're you're I love the thing about the the tasting notes and you know the the celebrity ideas and such. And like where where did that come from? Like how did you come up with that? It sounds so much more entertaining and interesting than what we often see on wine bottles, which is like literally feels like it could have been done by some AI with a mix of like cliched wine terminology. Yeah, I mean, I just was bored by reading tasting notes because it's like it doesn't entice me. It describes it. It des it may describe it accurately, but so what? It doesn't tell you anything about the personality. So, you know, if you read something that says this wine has layers of raspberry and cassis and blackcurrant, if you've never had raspberries, blackcurrant or cassis, it is totally irrelevant. And therein lies one of the cultural problems with how we have developed wine is that it is pretty much based on a Eurocentric palate. And our palates are very personal. So everything that you smell, that you taste, and then have the ability to recall is based on what you've experienced. And I am biracial. I'm half Japanese and half Jewish. And for the Japanese side of my family, I'm used to different types of aromas and palate components. So describing things in this Eurocentric language never really worked for me. And also, that really wasn't my background. So for me, what stood out about the wines was their personality. And the best way that I could... I think the first year when we introduced wines, I said that one was... Now, granted, this is 2003, so these people have evolved in a very different way. But I said one was Gwyneth Paltrow. It was refined. It was elegant. It was a bit, you know, restrained. Whereas the other one was the Angelina Jolie. It was kind of voluptuous. It was attention grabbing. That tells you more about the two personalities of wine, or at least it says more to me than it does if... I say one has blackberry and the other one has raspberry. I agree. I think that that's great because it does, it captures, it's really capturing more of a feel or a, a kind of experience of it. And I think for someone who is not, yeah, totally tuned into all the different flavors and all of that, which, which, yeah, I'm certainly not. And it is definitely, I think, a, a cool way of doing it. This also strikes me as as an example of where maybe for you, the not having the training and the background and the history in wine maybe has been an advantage, do you think? I think so. You know, another example of that is that I have a team member that I've supported him in going through educational training for wine service and wine knowledge, wine education. And I don't have that background. So the way we describe wines and 
explain things are two very different. He is more accurate for sure. But my goal is to make things relatable and to make them accessible. We have made wine in many cases intimidating. We think that there's some sort of insider knowledge that is required. I have so many people that if I'm asking them, oh, what do you get out of this wine? They're immediately apologetic. And they'll say, I can only tell you if I like it or I don't like it, but I can't tell you why. So the goal is to try to help people, number one, be in tune with whether they like it or not. And then number two, give them some tangible ways to break it down in a very simple, accessible way. I think that's great because it, it's like it's one of those things where I sometimes have thought, okay, I, I don't know how to describe this, or I read the label and I'm like, I guess that's right. I don't know, and I, I can tell you how I experience it or what I think, but it's not necessarily going to be the, the right language there. So I, th- I think that's definitely great and on the accessibility front from really making it feel less intimidating to people. Has it caused some conflict or a judgment from others who are, shall we say, more traditional in their approach to wines and tasting notes and things? I haven't really felt that, but I wouldn't really care if I did get that feedback because it's just a different objective. It's an objective of trying to make things as accessible as possible. And I usually acknowledge that it may not be in the most accurate or structured framework. That makes sense. So let's kind of come back to the story here. So you decide, okay, I'm I'm going to walk from the biotech here. I'm all in on the winemaking. And so you make that decision and like when you made that call, what was your next internal feeling and sense? Were you like, yes, I'm excited. I'm free to go tackle this. Or were you like, oh shit, was that a dumb mistake or something else? Like, how was that? All of the above. (laughs) I would say I was excited. And the reason why I don't think I ever answered your question. So what made me decide to do it right then and there was that I realized, wait a second, I have the opportunity to make wine, work with my dad and run my own business. Why wouldn't I do that right now? I mean, that's really the impetus. So I was excited about all of those things. And also I was completely intimidated. I I mean, I came, basically I quit my job, came up here. It happened to be harvest. So you just dive right into the winemaking. And at one point on one of my first days, and you know, I'd been up to work harvest, but that's for days, not for the whole thing. And harvest is a very intense period in which you are basically working seven days a week, a gazillion hours a day for a period of six, seven weeks, because that's when you have to make the decision to bring the grapes into the winery and process them. And so it's a very intense period. And I remember on one of the first days, my dad said, oh, go, you're going to need to bring that tank over here. And I'm looking at the tank and I'm thinking, how am I five foot, two inches of me going to get that tank over there. He's like, oh, just grab a pallet jack and move it over here. And I'm like, what is a pallet jack? I have no idea what you're even talking about. And <laughs> then I was like, I don't understand how I'm going to get it from here to there. He's like, oh, you just do a siphon. Well, what is a siphon? And how would I possibly know to do that? So when I say that my day-to-day experience, I went from feeling confident to not having any idea what anybody was talking about, it was extremely humbling. I could see that. Well, ho- hopefully your dad's the kind of person who, when you don't know something, is like supportive and helpful versus like, you know, judgmental and critical here. Totally. Well, I could see how that would also make him someone that would be really great to engage in this sort of adventure and endeavor with. Yeah, I feel so extremely grateful that I had the opportunity to start a business with my dad, learn everything about making wine from him, and do it side by side and build a business together. And we had that experience for 14 years until he died. And I feel extremely lucky. You know, not everyone has that many layers. When 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 he died in one second, I lost my business partner, my best friend, and my dad. And n- as difficult as that was, not everyone has that privilege and not everyone has that experience. So I feel extremely lucky. It really is two-sided, isn't it? It's like you just, and you just illustrated that so well. It's like on the, on the one hand, that's such a, such a tremendous loss, especially when it happens unexpectedly and suddenly like that. But then at the same time, it does give you that insight of like, wow, what a great opportunity that I've been able to have in this, this great special experience. Cause it really sounds like it was for the two of you 
really a very special and powerful bond that the two of you had as you were building this together. Absolutely. I mean, we had so much fun with the creative component of what do we want to build? What are our goals? What do we want to do with this business? And then the everyday piece of driving around and going to look at vineyards and always being together, it just was something that was extremely precious. And, you know, when he died, a lot of people said, are you going to keep going without him? Like, how could you do that? How could you do it without him? And I thought, how could I not? We built this together. How could I not grow it? and continue. Yes, it'll be hard, but it would be not as hard as not doing it. That makes sense to me totally. It's like of course you would want to want to continue and building on the, you know, the legacy and and honoring what you the two of you had created. Now, how did the two of you as you're, you know, you dive in here and you're doing this decide what it is that you wanted to build and what your goals were? Cuz I could imagine there's any number of ways one could approach that. How how was that process and what led to you deciding on the specific goals and objectives that you did? Yeah, I mean the reason we started the business in the first place was that my dad had a hobby of making wine just for fun. And he just wanted to continue to do that and do it better and better and better. So he did it because he loved it. And so from the very beginning, our goal was to continue to love making wine. It was never to build it so big that we wouldn't be the one personally touching everything. It was never to build it so big that we weren't the decision makers. We never wanted to have another boss. We didn't want to have a board. We didn't want to have investors. We just wanted to do it for the joy of doing it. And so that really framed the strategic choices we made. We never built a huge building with a lot of capital infrastructure. We We instead have always made wine in sort of co-op or collaborative facilities. So I've never owned our own physical winery building. And it's always been something where we have a shared structure. It took me many years before I planted our own vineyard. We started out by having contracts. So think of it like a lease arrangement where somebody may own a vineyard that has a thousand rows in it. And I may have a long-term contract for row one to row 100. And I must control all decision-making in that set of rows. But it was based on contracts as opposed to the planting and owning that land. So it really was framed by we wanted to do it because we loved it. I hear that and really being thoughtful, not just about what you wanted, but about really what you didn't want and how to, how to keep it something that right. you, that you could love. But I know also you're, you're a B Corp and I know that basically using your business for good is, is a really important aspect of this for you. And how and, and where did that come about for you as a piece of the puzzle? Well, first of all, one of the reasons that it took me a while to leave my job in biotechnology is that I worked on bringing basically drugs for cancer and autoimmune diseases to the market. Needless to say, I had a great sense of purpose and pride in what I was doing. And from the outset, I thought, how can I leave that to go make wine? Like, how am I making the world a better place? And what I've come to realize is it's both understanding your why and your how. And so why you're doing something and also how do you do it? And I've realized that there's a way that I can, quote unquote, just make wine, but do so in a way that I hope brings some awareness and funds to organizations that I think are doing good work in our community. So I do a few different wines that raise funds and awareness for specific causes. I have three wines that are doing that now. And then why we became a B Corp was simply that I was aware of what B Corps are. So I was aware of what they did. And I personally like to shop from B Corp products because those values align with mine. And I believe that we have a lot of power with how we spend our money and with our dollars. And then I thought, well, well, if I am shopping that way, 
why wouldn't I investigate the process of getting B Corp certified ourselves? Now, we're a tiny company. I only have one and a half employees besides myself. So we're tiny. So in a way, it seemed a little goofy to go through this B Corp certification for such a small company. But what I found in the process was that it gave me a little bit of a guideline of how I wanted to grow the business. So an example is, I was answering something and they said, is this written down in your employee handbook? And I'm like, I have one and a half employees. I don't have an employee handbook, but that's a good idea. And I ought to sit down and actually write one so that anyone that comes into our company is very clear on what our goals are, what our practices are. So it forced me to grow in the direction in which I wanted to evolve. That makes sense. And it gives you this kind of framework and this structure to work with. And and it's interesting because there, there, there are B Corps, right, of all shapes and sizes, because there's certainly a number of names on the list of B Corps that everybody knows, like Patagonia, you know, as, as an example. But it might be surprising to, to people to discover this. I know this, but there's a lot of just single person or one or two person businesses that are B Corps as well. And I think it's the same kind of thing that you're that you're talking about. Now, I'm wondering for you with operating under those those principles, because I know that's something that ends up affecting, I'm sure, how you go about your winemaking process and, and all of that. Does that create some challenges for you that maybe other wineries might not have or other hoops to jump through? Or you know, how does that lead to differences in how you approach the, the making and um, selling of your wine? It does, but those are constraints that I want to have. So I, I choose them. So I don't see them as impediments, but rather as just sort of a, a structure. But I'll give you an example. So so even and by the way, even before we went through the B Corp certification process, I had already sort of been concrete about what our commitments are. So on the back of our wine bottles, on the back label, it says committed to sustainable winemaking diversity and equity, and community. And I mean something very specific by each one of those three things. So one of the things that I mean by sustainable winemaking is not only is any vineyard that we work with farmed sustainably, but also I think very carefully about the carbon footprint of all the materials that we use. So I source lightweight eco glass that is produced locally. And that is very difficult. And in 2021 and in 2022, that became extraordinarily difficult given supply chain constraints. So there are some times where it makes it more difficult, but, you know, those are choices that I want to make. Which is a common theme that I hear when I talk with environmentally focused or oriented businesses. They really, it's, it becomes really fundamental to how they are. It's like, it's just like, well, yeah, that's what we do, right? It's, it's not, it's not a question. And that's really the, the primary consideration. Yeah. So first of all, why is it important? You know, as a winery, we are tied to our, I mean, if you just think about what wine is, you take something from the land that is totally dependent on the seasons. And you have to be very thoughtful about what went into that product and how that was grown. And I don't mean just how that was grown in terms of do you use pesticides and you know things like that. I also mean who worked on that, what agricultural workers worked on those products. And and what, how were they treated? How were they paid? Where did they live? It means thinking about the whole ecosystem. And I think that wine has a lot of complexity because wine is at once a luxury product, an agricultural product, a retail product. It, it has a lot of layers to it. And it's just a matter of being thoughtful about the whole ecosystem, that getting something from my vineyard to your house and your glass, just all the steps. Kind of random question, but have you ever thought about or looked at or explored the idea of using aluminum for your, you know, instead of instead of glass? I haven't. I don't think that it quite fits with my brand. So I I haven't really adopted it or evaluated it. 
One thing that we're working on right now is that we're part of an initial test group that will be bottling next year in a different type of glass that is also eco glass with the goal of this being part of a closed loop refillable, washable system. So one of the great consternations that I have is if if I pour you wine, if I and I pour you wine in a glass, I don't throw the glass away. I don't recycle the glass that you used, but we do that with our wine bottles. And the reason we do that with our wine bottles is a very convoluted political reason of what is included in bottle bills and what isn't included in bottle bills and the ability to recapture that glass and to recoup that and to get that back and clean it in a sanitized way. So there are a gazillion different hurdles, but we're part of a beta test that is going to start working on that because if we don't try it, then it's there's a 0% chance it'll work. Well, I love that. That's I think that's such a good way of trying to, to navigate this. I asked about the aluminum because I know from a weight standpoint, aluminum is lighter, but I get that in different situations, one material or the other may, may make more sense. But when you make the glass, something like that, where it's really just about, okay, we're washing and refilling these, that's a whole other deal. And that, that's it also, to me at least, I'm, I'm aging myself here, but it has a little bit of a retro aspect to it too, because I remember when I was a kid having Coke and glass bottles and those bottles you'd see, they'd get over time, they'd get a little nicked up and you'd sell the ones that have been reused. And I was like, that was kind of cool and um, never understood why that went away. So yeah, that's really, I think it's really interesting that you're involved in these things and good to hear like from somebody who cares about this stuff. I'm like, oh, that's really cool that there are people looking at and exploring these sorts of solutions and really trying to figure out how do we keep pushing the envelope and really finding ways to be mindful of these impacts through what we're doing. Now, on the other side of this with what you you talked about, like your, you know, some of these wines that you do for specific causes, and I know there's been a number of, of different areas there. How do you go about choosing the ones that you're going to do? And what does that process you know, look like? And um, yeah, go, I'll just leave it there. So I would say I don't make a choice or I don't make a decision, it just sort of finds me. So uh, the way I started those is that my daughter is eight years old. She is my little miracle child because I was very old when I got pregnant with her. And I had her two months early. And so she and I lived in the NICU together for the first month of her life. And while we were in the NICU, my dad came in and he said, hey, what do you think of adopting the French tradition of creating a wine that is meant to be aged until a child's 21st birthday? And I said, that's a great idea. Here, take this piece of paper and write down all the things that you would do to create a wine that's meant to age. And I'll do the same thing. And then we switched lists and it was the exact same list. So I stayed in the NICU and he went and made that wine, which we thought was only going to be a one-time commemorative of her birth year. Well, fast forward about a year and a half later, my dad had just died and I went into the cellar and I'm standing there in their cellar looking at a hundred barrels. And there were three different lots or sets of, of vineyards that stood out to me as being the best in the cellar, but they needed a long time to come around. And so I made the decision then that the Gabriella Pinot Noir, that's my daughter's name, so it's named after her, the Gabriella Pinot Noir would be our best foot forward in any given year, and it, that it would be the wine that's meant to age. And as a result, and my, my daughter is totally healthy, as a result, we give a portion of proceeds of all sales of the Gabriella Pinot Noir back to the NICU where Gabriella and I stayed. And that's something that's really important to me because without their neonatal intensive care services, there would be no Gabriella the girl or Gabriella the wine. So it seemed like the very least I could do would be to give back. From there, I also do a, a. I have a different wine right now. It's the Willamette Valley Chardonnay that gives to the March of Dimes. The March of Dimes does a lot in the area of NICU services and prematurity advocacy and research. Um, and our goal with that is to to raise enough funds to support 
opening up a NICU family support center in Oregon. So that's another program that we do. And then the third one is called STEM and Root. And I named it that because our roots are in STEM because I worked in biotechnology. My dad was in software engineering. And I wanted to have to support STEM education specifically for girls. And the reason I say for girls is that the name of our winery, AFI, means and daughter. And so it's important to me to support organizations that are making our community better for all of our daughters. And so I've done two different STEM and Root that raised money for different organizations. That one I'll probably rotate because I think there are a lot of organizations that are doing terrific work for providing STEM education for girls. It's so cool to see the different ways that companies and businesses come up with to be able to support causes and do creative and, and innovative things. And I'm struck again by thinking, here's another space where it's like, I think for you, your your lack of being kind of immersed in traditional wine and um, vineyard culture probably served as an advantage because you're more just thinking about the cause and about how to, you know, how to support that. And that leaves you open to having this really very simple but yet really cool idea that you can use as a way to, you know, to be of support. Totally. And I think that goes back to the how, the how piece of it. So at its broadest stroke, okay, am I making the world a better place by just making more wine? Maybe, maybe not. But how we do that and what we're supporting in our own little tiny ecosystem matters. Well, absolutely. And again, you're, you're really, it seems like you've found all these different ways and how you go about your business to be really mindful and thoughtful of uh, supporting causes and making the world a better place of being just mindful of the fact that this is a, you know, closed ecosystem that we're living in really, and that the things we do have, have secondary impacts. So I think that's really great. And you, in doing all of that, have been able to continue to evolve and grow. And so how many bottles of wine do you produce a year at this point? We're at about 3,200 cases a year. So that's roughly 40,000 bottles a year. Not bad for a one and a half person operation. Yeah. So we started out only making Pinot Noir. And then when my dad was still alive, we added a Viognier to the mix and we made a rosé a couple of times. But in the last few years, I've sort of expanded what we're making and kind of tried to diversify our lineup a bit, if you will. So last year, we introduced three wines for the first time. Well, actually, in the last two years, we've introduced five new wines, I guess. But now we make sparkling wine, we make Gamay, we make Chardonnay, we make white Pinot Noir. So there are other things besides Pinot that we're working on. But Pinot in the Willamette Valley of Oregon is our calling card. It's what we have achieved our reputation for making. I've never heard of white Pinot. Tell me about that. I'm curious. Yeah. So it's <laughs> white Pinot is made from a Pinot Noir, red grape. And basically, you pick it early, you crop it heavy, you pick it early, you press it immediately. And so it loses all of its color. It is literally white in color. So it looks like a Chardonnay, for example. But the reason I started making it is because I was making sparkling wine. And for sparkling wine, you take both Chardonnay and also Pinot Noir and you do the same thing. And I loved the base wine from the Pinot. And I thought, well, why wouldn't we do a still version of this too? So that was really why we, why we started it. We only make a very little amount. You know, we sold out in a couple months, but it's just something fun. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know that you do this, is you do, most people think of, you know, wines and and vineyards and wineries, you know, going to wine tastings and stuff in person. And that's, you know, can be a lot of fun, but you do virtual ones too, correct? Yeah. So basically during COVID, of course, everything was shut down. And, you know, at the, at the time I said to my team, I want to be too small to fail because we, the whole world is uncertain. Nothing in our traditional ability to sell this product is going to work because we're all shut down. So let's just try things and just try whatever and see what works. I started doing virtual tastings largely because 
remember to 2020 and even 2021, a lot of teams were not able to get together for their usual celebrations. So especially end of year, you couldn't have a client appreciation dinner or a team bonding dinner or celebration dinner. And so we put together virtual tastings. And I had a couple different ones that we did. One is Wine Tasting 101. So for those people that, like we were talking about earlier, that say, I like a wine or I don't like a wine, but I can't tell you anything else, that we could make it a very simple framework of how to get through a 40-minute wine tasting and then be able to break down the different components and appreciate the wine in a different way. So Wine Tasting 101 was one of them. Introduction to the Willamette Valley was another. So we had a couple different things, but then I would modify it. And it, we, we had a lot of fun and it was just something that was a really fun way that we could bring dispersed teams and family members together. So I'm actually doing another one tomorrow. So occasionally we'll still do them for teams that are spread apart. Makes sense. I mean, there's enough companies that are, I know several that are fully virtual or really spread out. And so it's a it's a fun opportunity for them to be able to, to connect over a shared experience that wouldn't necessarily happen otherwise. And and this, I mean, on top of all the other things we've talked about is there's so much creativity here in these different offerings that you have and these different ways that you go about doing it. And I'm, I'm wondering for you, like, where does your creativity come from? Like, how do you come up with these ideas? Well, first of all, that's a really interesting observation that you have because I do not consider myself to be creative at all. I consider myself to be very left brain, analytical, live in spreadsheets, So I don't really consider myself to be creative. I mean, I guess for one thing, I'm the mom of an eight-year-old who is creative and who will ask all kinds of questions. And so, you know, I think that probably keeps me open-minded to some degree. But I think it's also a matter of surrounding yourself with a team that has different perspectives and different experiences, whether that's your direct employees or your extended teammates, the partners that you have that provide different services. But I think it's about curiosity. I mean, I, I listened to your episode on the power of curiosity, and I could not agree with that anymore. It's a matter of just being curious, and that is what can give you some fun ideas. That makes makes a ton of sense. I think curiosity is such a such a powerful tool. I've really I had always kind of known that, but watching my own daughter and how she the things she comes up with by wondering about stuff and being curious is just so like kind of crazy but also cool. And so I've really seen that as something that that really sparks creativity. But I also will note here, I think a lot of people think of themselves if they don't like make music or art or something, they go like I'm not, or they don't write, you know, write novels, or like I'm not creative. But I think of like, creativity is is anytime we're taking things that are done a certain way and we're like, well, how can I do this differently or how can I build on this or evolve or whatnot? And I think there's a lot of power in for creativity in business. And I think it's a place where it really allows, especially small businesses, it allows you to shine because there's so much about your business. That's the thing I'm struck by here is there's so much about you and how you make your wine and the ways that you you know package and position it that is so different. It's so innovative. And I would imagine that's been something that's been helpful for you in trying to grow your, ban- your brand and, and gain visibility. Yeah. I mean, the other component of creativity is I have very little to no fear of failure because I go back to we're small. And so I just assume I'm going to fail a certain percentage of the time and learn from it and move on. So I'm willing to try things. I mean, during going back to during COVID when nothing in the traditional world was working, I felt that it was really important to just try stuff. The worst thing we could have done would be to just sit there with our hands folded and say, well, we can't do anything. We can't sell wine. We can't pour wine for people. We can't do all this stuff. But whatever, just try things and learn from it. And and some is, some are going to work and some aren't. So for you, like I hear it, you're like, yeah, I'm not afraid of failure. And so when failures happen, what do you do with those? How do you like move forward after those occur? I think one piece of it is giving yourself some quiet time 
to sit with it and to think, what was this here to teach me? What, why did this happen? What is it that I could possibly learn from this? So I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I was participating in a very high-profile auction. So this is a situation where you create a unique and special wine that is meant to be tasted and bid on by the highest caliber of wine professionals in our country. And the day before the event, I opened up a bottle and I thought it was awful. And as it turns out, it was a bad bottle. (laughs) Like it just happened to be a bad bottle. That happens very infrequently, but it happened to be. And, you know, subsequently I did open another bottle. My mom, actually, my mom who doesn't even drink wine, she doesn't drink alcohol, said, well, have you tried another bottle? And I said, no, because I was too busy spiraling and going down a rabbit's hole of how of my imposter syndrome and how incompetent I must be and how embarrassing this is going to be. But I believe that that happened for two reasons that I could learn. One is never underestimate the power of detail and the power of paying attention to every single detail in the winemaking process because you could make the best decisions. Winemaking is all about decision-making. And you could make 117 right decisions and then make one wrong decision and it could set it off. So that was number one is always be crystal clear on all the details of decision making. And then the second was to vet your assumptions. You know, when my mom said, did you try a second bottle? And I had to say, no, I didn't. So I don't know. I think it's a matter of when you have a failure trying to figure out what what are you supposed to learn? What's the opportunity? What's the gift hiding in underneath there? It's such a powerful reframe, right? As the saying goes, like, or what's well, the saying? It's a quote from someone that's like, I win or I learn. And I think that's what you're talking about is you really managed to, to get to that space and that's how you think about it. There might need to be a bit of a pause and a little bit of, of other stuff, a little bit of churning in there, but it sounds like you really have embodied that and seen how it leads to positive things over time for you. So I'm wondering if there might be for you something on the more on the kind of challenging difficulty end of the business, if there's something that you've got going on currently that maybe you're wrestling with that we could dig into and unpack here a little bit. I would love to do that. So one of the things that I've been struggling with as we grow, so we're in a situation where we've more than doubled sales in a couple of years. And so we're having to grow production in order to keep up with that. So we're in a period of what feels for me with a team of one and a half people, rapid growth. And one of the things that happens when you're a founder is you do all the roles, you do everything. And now when you are growing, you can't do all those roles anymore. So you really need to think about how you're evolving the roles, not just adding to and adding headcount, but also how are you thoughtfully adding the roles, evolving the roles so that you can adequately grow the business and pay attention to that which you as the entrepreneur can be uniquely positioned to spend your time doing those things. And I'm struggling with that because number one, it's hard for me to let go of certain things that I've always done. And number two, it's hard for me to figure out what are those things that I can let go because I deem a lot of things on the necessary list. Okay. So how have you gone about trying to tackle this challenge so far? I started by doing a current assessment of functions or responsibilities by role. And when I did that, I basically took me and my one and a half employees, and I made an exhaustive list of all of our responsibilities. And then I got stuck. And then then I could see the problem statement. I could see that there's way too much in certain people's camp and lighter in other areas. But I got stuck and I walked away from it because I couldn't see the solution. What are you afraid of here? 
not giving people the tools they need to take on more different new. What would get in the way of that happening? Going from just doing it automatically to taking the time to think about how does that get done? Why do I do it that way? Are there better ways to do it? And it's that whole, it's that whole cop out of it's easier to just, it's just faster to do it myself. Right, right. It, it's certainly more comfortable, I'm sure. But whether or not it actually serves what you're trying to do is a whole other question, which that brings up for me is, at this point, do you feel like you have a really solid, clear picture of where you're trying to go with the business? And how does this shift tie to that? I think I have a solid picture of where I want to take the business. And I don't know that I have a solid view of how, from an organizational structure perspective, if I am building it to where we are, I'm building it, it's built to where we are, not necessarily to where I want to take it. Right. So figuring out how to traverse that gap is... Something that feels like you're not, I'm hearing you're like, I'm not quite sure how to, how to do that. It feels daunting. Have you tried working backwards? No. Tell me more. You know where you want to get to. Mm -hmm. Build what an organization that was there and doing that successfully would look like, hypothetically. Take a step back from that towards where you are. Take a step back. I always liken it to those, you know, those maze puzzles that as kids we do with like, you go find it through on the, with a pencil, you kind of like figure yeah, out your yeah, way through yeah. the maze. For yeah, me, I, yeah. I eventually learned like you start at the end and work backwards. It's, it's super easy. It's the same thing. So, but seriously, this is the thing we get, we get stuck on this point. It's like, well, we'll try working, we'll try working the equation from the other direction mm -hmm. and see what that does for you. That's so funny. My daughter and I had the same thing. She had the maze book and I would always go backwards. And she was like, mom, you're so smart. I was like, just keep saying that because you got another few years of that. And then after that, you're going to be like, mom. <laughs> right. Well, you, you never know. My, my, mine's 13 and she, she still thinks I'm pretty smart. We'll see how long it lasts, but, but so far so good. But yeah. I, so, so that's one thing I'd say is work backwards. But another thing would be this there is more than one way to solve this problem. And I say that because there's more than one way, one way to solve any problem. But what we get caught up in is figuring out like, how do I do this? And what might open up some possibility for you is playing with some scenarios, like come up with what are three ways that you might work there and map those out and then start working with it. And I think things like that, because really the key here is about, I'm hearing you're stuck, right? And the key is like, mm -hmm. how do we get things flowing again and get you looking at that? And so this is about trying to identify possibility and trying to figure out how can we access that curiosity of yours? Because it seems like a very powerful problem solving tool. That, Steve, both of those things that you just said, I think are so helpful because your maze analogy totally worked for me. And then also this idea of if I know the problem statement, I know where we're headed to evaluate different options takes away the constraint of being frozen. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's the thing is it's when we're stuck, it's about figuring out like, how do we get any sort of movement? Because yeah. this is, a, is a, a bit of a physics problem, right? It's harder to get from zero to one than it is to get from one to two or from even one to 10. And so when we're at zero, what we want to do is we figure out instead of if we can't get to one, we figure out what does half look like? What does a quarter look like? Or what does even a 10th look like until we find the spot that we're like, oh, I can get that movement going. Because as soon as we get moving, things really start to shift. I feel like you just took this boulder that's been sitting on my shoulders and lifted it up because that's exactly what it was. I didn't want to start because I didn't know the one answer. And in looking at it from, let's just brainstorm a couple scenarios that totally, totally feels doable. Fabulous. 
one other thing that I'll throw out here that I think you can incorporate that might be useful is just when we're thinking about taking actions on these things, we get stuck in like, oh my God, I don't want to you know do something wrong here. Now, I think that might be less of a concern for you because I hear you're not too concerned about failure, but I think it's always a good idea when we're thinking about decision-making to be aware of reversibility. How reversible is this choice? Because when it's reversible, we can be like, I'm going to run an experiment. I'm going to try this for 30 days and I'm going to see what happens. And if it goes great, cool. If it goes horribly, I'll abandon it. Or if it goes kind of in between, I'll make some adjustments, right? And so I think that that's a framing that can really help us also when we're feeling stuck to to loosen things up of that. Mm-hmm. That's great. So besides this piece of figuring out how you're going to continue and grow and evolve, what else is kind of coming up and on your radar as we head towards 2024? This will be coming out in January, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm, we're having this conversation in mid-December. So kind of what's, yeah, what's on the calendar for you as far as planning and, and vision here? Yeah. I mean, next year we're going to um, introduce the another round of bubbles. So we have more sparkling wines and we have more new wines that are coming out. I also had planted our estate vineyard, which is located at my house, which is also the house that I grew up in. And so I look at it every day. I planted that. It won't bear fruit next year, but cultivating that is a big piece of the year. So it's really focused on this year because it was our 20-year anniversary. The theme of our 20-year anniversary was rooted in legacy and focused on future. So we did a lot of things to honor our origin story and also to focus on what was poising us for the future. And this upcoming year is really going to be about focusing on the future. Cool. I'm excited to see what happens there. Now, for folks who are curious about your wines from a distribution standpoint, where are your wines available? I know you're in Oregon. Are they available outside of Oregon? And and where can somebody get your wine if they're looking for some? Yeah, great question. So the best way to get it is from our website, which is apwines.com. And the reason is that, you know, we wineries can sell in one of two ways. We can either sell direct to consumer or we can sell through distribution. For small wineries like mine, I cannot release all of our wines into distribution. So what I typically do is just release one or two wines through distribution. We are in 10 different states, and but all of our wines are available direct to consumers. So finding it on the website is really the best place to, to find the whole lineup. Awesome. And we'll definitely link uh, your website in the show notes here. And for uh, folks who want to learn more about you, is there anywhere else online? I don't know much of a social media presence. You're on Instagram or other, where else yeah. can people connect with you? Yeah, we're on we're on Instagram and Facebook, and I manage our social media. So if anybody ever has questions, whether it's as silly as if I like this wine, what are what are some other ones I should try? Anything at all, just direct message us and it comes to me. So I'll answer. Jessica, thank you so much for, for coming on here. love the conversation. I just, I really love the model that you're creating with just being creative and mindful. And there's, there's just so many things about your business that are really, really cool. And that's why I wanted to reach out to you and why I'm really grateful for you, you coming on so we can have this conversation. I can share what you're up to with the world. So thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Steve. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for the conversation. 